you've interrupted my super smooth transition i'm gonna have to start all over again uh nick yeah yes steve nick it's just you and me it's just us it is it is here here at the end of all things the end of all that wait what's happening frodo and sam just on the slopes of aura druin i'm fine with that uh comparison so long as i am sam fine you're sam yes anywho that's that's fantasy. And we've already talked about fantasy, you and I. Yes. On an episode of the Song Topsy Report, where we dissect bad, bizarre, or otherwise noteworthy music, figure out how it died. I'm one of the people previously mentioned, Stephen Trollinger. And I am Samwise Gamgee. Uh, yes, Steve, we did talk about fantasy. First off, I'm, I'm amazed that you uh, referenced that episode because it was quite a while ago. Anything pre-pandemic just feels like a different different lifetime, but... Uh, yes, we did Tolkien and Metal uh, back in episode 70-something, I believe. Yeah, 71, I think. Yes. Uh, and uh, I and since we're getting towards the end of all of things, of all things, yes, show-related. Uh, if you haven't checked out the past few episodes, uh, we are marching towards episode 200. we got some very exciting stuff coming after, which we've been dropping some hints about what's going to be coming up uh, next for us over the past few episodes, so check that out. And uh, and yes, it is just Steve and I today. It is what I like to refer to as the special NPR episodes of the Song Topsy Report because Mike is not present. Uh, but Steve has brought to offer to offer fun and frivolity and lackadaisical sort of lackadaisical nature to the proceedings uh, that keeps it all easy breezy. Beautiful cover girl. Yes, so this time, uh, listeners, this is going to be a real slog because Steve brought the subject material and it is uh, the... the Dense. Ooh, it's dense. It's so dense. Is it the thickest? The trick is to pick it apart with a stick. That's, we are not talking about Sondheim. I'm not disgracing that that man's good name with this show. Uh, yes, yeah, R.I.P. So R. I love how we did a special DMX yes. episode when he died, but Stephen Sondheim, we've decided he's not worth it. Well, <laughs> I, I would have, but we're, we've got very limited time on our hands. Uh, but thinking back on that and uh, seeing as how we are here at the end. Uh, Toward I, the end. You know, like, for, towards the end. And, and you know, in case you missed it, the, the little quote I used at the beginning was what, Frodo says to Sam when they're about to be swallowed up with lava on Mount Doom after destroying the ring. But, you know, whatever. Uh, you didn't get it. That's fine. Anywho, uh, so that put me in remembrance of the first time Nick and I were forced to talk to each other uh, on air over a subject of some sort. And uh, we had talked about, as you said, uh, the, the propensity for artists in the heavy metal genre to crib from the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and it put me in the mind of doing something similar as like a capstone, a bookend, a corollary, if you will. A sci-fi bookend. Just to add to the NPR nature of this, I'm going to just use synonym after synonym the rest of the episode. Three synonyms and less. Um, yes, yeah, so I thought, why not sort of revisit that? And let's talk about, Nick and I, let's talk about science fiction and its influence in uh in the the, the history of, of uh, modern music um now that subject is a little bit wider 
than the Tolkien and Metal, uh, you know, episode. So in order to like really keep it down a bit, I had to throw out some some rules for myself. So like one, nothing that was expressly made for something science fiction, like you know, like a, a Queen's Flash Gordon theme song or. Uh, or anything that was science fiction sort of flavored, like, you know, most of David Bowie's, like, late 60s, early 70s work uh, was, you know, science fiction flavored. He had original characters. So I, I wanted to limit it to music that was inspired by a pre-existing science fiction entity. Since we had talked about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings influencing heavy metal, I wanted to talk about pop music and the various bands that sort of pull from pre-existing science fiction classics and in some cases not so classic um and so some of these might nick might know and some of them that uh, he might not and hopefully it'll be informative to you the listener because that's why you come here to be informed not for any sort of entertainment <laughs> value or uh, laughter or anything like that is to be informed just kidding listeners this is going to be a lot of fun i'm very excited uh, I've seen some of the bands that Steve is going to be pulling up, and I appreciate you narrowing it down somewhat because Tolkien and metal is pretty specific. It's it's one sub fantasy and one subgenre of fantasy specifically, sort of, and then one musical genre. Whereas pop music and science fiction is much broader. You know, even Nicki Minaj did a song about uh, starships. So you know, I, I appreciate you narrowing it down. Yeah, exactly. And this is. Um you know, this is, I guess, mostly rock and pop. I didn't, I mean, I, I pulled a lot of this, I pulled from my own personal experience and songs that I knew. So uh, I'm probably leaving out a whole bunch of different artists and genres. And you can yell at me on the internet later if you want to. Please do, listeners. Because I didn't talk about something that I didn't know about. Um, so <laughs> How dare uh, you don't talk about things you don't know about. I know, right? It's almost as if I pulled this together at the last minute and had to rely on my pre-existing knowledge. It's almost like there was another episode planned up until very recently. Almost like that, but certainly not. But yes, Steve, where are we beginning on this science fiction Uh, adventure? I want to ease Nick into it. And the best way I know how to ease Nick into something is by playing some Iron Maiden. Oh, you're speaking my language, Steve. Because when I think Nick and easy living, I think of a literal medieval Iron Maiden where you just, you're sitting in a metal coffin being pierced by numerous blades. Uh, And this is actually going to be, this song is, uh, and there's a couple of other references to this particular science fiction work, uh, is actually, this is very good timing on my part because a very, uh, you know, well-made movie on this particular book has just come out within the last couple of months. So as usual, I'm in the zeitgeist. Uh, But the song is called uh, To Tame a Land by Iron Maiden. Steve, based on these lyrics, I can tell it takes place on something called Planet Dune, but for the life of me, what is the property it's based on? Why, Nicholas, you ignorant slut, uh, it is obviously based on, that bit will never get old for me, I don't care if it was from the 70s, uh, <laughs> that was based, 
that was based on uh, it is a, it's not even a song based on it is a song straight up recounting the more or less major plot points of Dune by Frank Herbert most recently a motion picture a major motion picture that I saw in theaters and will never ever watch again because I don't need to it was one of those movies that I enjoyed it while it was happening but I never have to sit through it ever again, and nor do I choose to. Well, that's a ringing endorsement as someone who hasn't seen it. And yes, Steve, you're right. Uh, Iron Maiden was kind of ahead of the Sparknotes game in terms of some literal regurgitation of uh, books and whatnot. Because actually, uh, they, they did this a lot on their earlier albums. They would end the album with like their longest song, like you know, seven, eight, nine minutes. Uh, and the album like after this, uh, Somewhere in Time, I believe, uh, they ended that one with a song called Alexander the Great, and you'll never guess who it's about, just in a very literal historical sense. Odysseus. Damn it, how'd you know? Yes, yes. It's about, it about Odysseus, just all, all of his various uh You can't adventures. swerve me. I'm I'm unswervable. <laughs> yes, you are. I have the I have the cloak of unswervability. So yeah, so this song, the, this uh, song is about Dune. And to Iron Maiden's credit, they were they were talking about this before Dune was popular. I mean, when it, the book was released, the book was popular in terms, uh, in circles of like people who read books. Yes, yes. It, within, I mean, obviously, within the science fiction reader community, Dune has always been popular. But I feel like the books progressively get denser and denser, from my understanding, um, and maybe slightly problematic, from what I heard as well. But now with the movie coming out, uh, obviously, it has opened that I'm sure to many more people. But Iron Maiden was still a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of bringing the material into a popular culture sense outside of the literature. That's right, Nick. <laughs> uh, but I also wanted to mention before when you had said the books get progressively more dense. No, no, my friend, they start that way. <laughs> they start that way, and they never look back. <laughs> Okay, See, I'm like right there, <laughs> like right there, right there, the lyrics, the lyrics, like they, much like Frank Herbert himself, Iron Maiden is not bothering to explain to their listeners what any of the weird made up words they're saying are, are like what they sound like or what they're supposed to mean. First of all, they, they pronounced Arrakis wrong. It's Arrakis, not Arrakis, but I guess they had to fit the meter. And it's better than the previous verse where they called it Dune. The planet's not called Dune, guys. It's called Arrakis. Now they got me saying Arrakis. It's called Arrakis. Yeah, so I have, um, I, I, I've obviously, I'm a fan of Iron Maiden. I've listened to all their stuff. I've listened to the song a few times, but never with the lyrics on. And, you know, seeing the lyrics now in front of me, uh, it does not help at all. And in, no, Iron no. in Iron Maiden's defense, I will say they have seven and a half minutes, which is pretty long for a song. You know, they don't have time to explain the plot of the book, Steve. The whole point of this is to kind of give you give you just a little bit of that inkling to maybe get you into the book. Or maybe they don't care about that at all and just needed a subject for the last song on their album, Peace of Mind. But it's but they they, they took they just they took after Frank Herbert because they don't. You, yeah, you don't have to know, but I guess you're. I guess it's Iron Maiden. You're listening to it for the excruciatingly long guitar solos, maybe. Excru um, how dare you, Steve? <laughs> Virtuous. Like they, they just they just start throwing out stuff like Still Suit, Spice, Muad'Dib, Kwisatz Haderach. 
Caladan. He'll take the Gamjabar. It's like, what? He'll take the... What is that? I'm surprised... I don't that, know what that is. Th- this album came out in 86, I believe. I'm surprised parents didn't assume that that was a drug reference and use it to further try to ban Iron Maiden. Spice. They mentioned Spice. That is a drug reference. Yes. Spice is a drug. But it's a fake drug. The Spice is life. But yeah, they throw out a whole bunch of stuff like, it's a land that's rich in Spice, the Sand Raiders, Sand Riders and the Mice that they call the Muad'Dib. Muad'Dib is is a is a, a word is a made up word in the book for mice. They're like <laughs> the mice that the mice that live on Arrakis are like sand mice or something. Quisat's uh, Hatterak, that's like a, the chosen one basically. That's the main character. Paul Atreides, whose name they never mentioned in the, they're just in the whole song. They don't. I don't think they call him Paul one time. Uh, but you do know that he's called the Kwisatz Haderach, and he was born on Caladan, and you don't know what the hell Caladan is, uh, and then he'll take the Gam Javar. So watch out, I'm assuming. Once again, have not read the book or seen the movie. I've listened to the song. I've listened to the Iron Maiden song. And now the rest of you have as well. So that's, that's Iron Maiden and their, and their love of Dune. Uh, one other sort of an honorable mention in terms of a reference to Dune that you might know is there uh, the song uh, Weapon of Choice. Uh, I hesitate to call it a song, but the musical selection Weapon of Choice by Fatboy Slim, who most people I'm sure remember from the charming music video where Christopher Walken dances alone in a hotel by, you know, tat- soft shoes his way through a hotel That by happened himself. in the music video? I never saw that. No? You've never seen the music video? I, ha- I have not. Okay. Well, we'll have to sideline that discussion. I'll I'll just need to yeah. watch it on my own time. We're gonna do that after the show's over. <laughs> uh, but there's a there's a line, and you know it's a Fat Boy Slim song, so it only has five of them. <laughs> uh, but there's a there's a lyric uh, where he says, if I'm remembering right, "Walk without rhythm, and you won't attract the worm. Walk without rhythm, you won't attract the worm." That's a direct reference to Dune. On the planet Arrakis, there is a walk that the Fremen do. The Fremen are sort of like the pseudo sort of Middle Eastern people that live on the planet. Um, that's where the problematic part that Nick brought up earlier comes in. And then, of course, you know, white guy shows up and he's their secret messiah. You know, you know, like white people do. The huge, yes. And, uh, and they... They have a specific way of walking when they're out on the sand. They're out of the cities. They're on the, you know, the sandscape. The uh, sandworms are blind. They, they sense via vibration, much like the graboids from Tremors. Uh, that, that they stole, definitely stole that from. Uh, Tremors, not, not Dune. And uh, so the Fremen came up with a special walk that doesn't sound like footsteps. It's, it just, it's supposed to mimic, it's just like a rhythmic walk that is supposed to mimic like wind sweeping sand because the worms know what what that sounds like so they don't they they can differentiate between that and people walking so just a fun little thing in that fat boy slim song just mentioning hey do the sand walk you won't get eaten by worms i feel like white people have been taking that dance to heart forever if it requires a lack of rhythm that's why that's why paul was the quisant hatterack ah it all comes together now he couldn't move with rhythm, so he was never. He was king of the sandworms. I hate it when people keep saying white people don't have rhythm. <laughs> um, now the next one I'm going to bring up uh, is interesting because I did I did talk about this uh, 
up front, I made mention of saying, like, well, I'm not going to talk about David Bowie, except for right now. Right oh, now, yes. I'm going to talk about David Bowie. Right now, we're looking at a performance uh, by David Bowie right in front of us. Now, uh, David Bowie, for those who may not know, was a huge fan of science fiction. Like, he read a lot of, a lot of science fiction works of the day, and uh, one of the books he really enjoyed was 1984. Now, George Orwell's 1984 is a classic, um, but a combination of two factors have rendered it kind of toothless at this point in time. Uh, three factors. One, they make you read it in school now, which automatically renders every child incapable of garnering any meaning from it because it's a boring assignment. Uh, two, it was co-opted by any hippie, dippy, crunchy, you know, uh, uh, counterculture person to Big Brother, man, to talk about Big Brother and the surveillance state, man. They've their co-opting of of it made sure nobody paid any attention to what they were saying, and so all the words fell on deaf ears. And then the third factor being we live in it now. <laughs> So those three factors have kind of rendered the book toothless. But in its day, it was, you know, a damning uh, assessment of uh, George Orwell at the time had uh, written it to reflect Stalinist uh, Soviet Russia at the time. uh, And also to sort of reflect, obviously, the, you know, Nazi regime in Germany uh, years prior. Um, But basically, you know, like a soulless, creative void where everyone does whatever the state tells them and the leader has a cult of personality built around them. You know, you've heard it a thousand times, at least once or twice in real life over the last five or six years. But uh, at the time, in the 60s and 70s, it it hadn't been rendered toothless, so it still had a little bite to it. And Toothful. uh, David Bowie, it was a funny, fun story. In uh, 1973, David, so David Bowie hates flying. He couldn't, he was terrified of flying. So whenever he traveled somewhere, uh, he did it by boat or by train. And so he was coming back from to London from a Japanese tour in the early 70s. So he took a boat from Japan and then took a train, the Trans-Siberian Railway, through Russia. And in that whole week-long journey to Moscow, uh, he saw just like the absolute worst of Soviet Russia, just like... You know, everyone's, you you know what, you can picture it in your head, guys. Yeah, Russian listeners, you know. Yeah. And then he got to Moscow. present-day American listeners. Yeah, then he got to Moscow, and he watched a day-long military parade at Red Square, and he thought to himself, this must be, and I'm not going to try to do a David Bowie impression, uh, even though I definitely can. (laughs) Um, Fuck you. Do it or don't. Don't say I could do it, but I want to. Um, on my, uh, he said, he's dead. I'm not going to def- defame the dead with my impressions. Um, on my trips through Russia, I thought, well, this must be what fascism feels like because it was. Um, and so he, and then he passed through like the no man's land between East and West Berlin and saw all the bombed out ruins and was just stunned by it. So it sort of tense intensified his growing sense of paranoia and panic. And I'm sure the drugs didn't help either. <laughs> um, so he got it in his head. And this was around the time that he, he was trying to, like, distance himself from Ziggy Stardust. So I said up front that, you know, David Bowie, huge science fiction fan, created his own sci-fi persona, Ziggy Stardust. He came out with a lot of songs with a sci-fi flavor to them featuring that character. You know, his songs were as much performance art or theater as they were just fun songs. 
And I didn't want to go through that because it's, you know, that was the limit I set on myself. But eventually he wanted to distance himself from that. And he came up with a new character called Halloween Jack. And he came out after this trip through Russia with the idea of he wanted to start to explore more of this sort of sense, encroaching sense of fascism. Because he he felt it even when he got back to Britain. He felt this sense of like, you know, like they were the IRA was bombing every other day. There were blackouts. It was, you know... Uh, there was the gas rationing, and he still felt, you know, still kind of felt like he was going through Russia a little bit. And so he thought, you know, I'm going to make a musical. That's what you think when you go through Russia and you get super depressed and paranoid. You think, I'm going to make a musical out of this. Uh, And he thought, um, and he loved the book 1984, and he thought it was, you know, for that particular time, that would be something to speak to. So he thought, I'm going to make a 1984 musical. And he started to formulate some songs that would go on it. Um, however, when he went to George Orwell's widow to uh, to ask, uh, what's her name? Georgina. Sonia. Uh, so when he went... Well, he didn't go. When he had his people ask Sonia Orwell for permission, she refused. Now, part of that might have been because she just refused everyone. Uh, part of it might have also been the whole, like, him being like a, uh, like a bisexual weirdo. Uh, uh, and she might, have, she might have been a little put off by that. But whatever the reason, um, as he described her, quote, For a person who married a socialist with communist leanings, she was the biggest upper-class snob I've ever met in my I've ever met in my life. Ooh, zing! Like she said, "Good heavens, put it to music," and that was it. Like he knew he wasn't going to get it. Uh, But he had, you know, this modern hedonistic bisexual rock star going to this old woman saying, "Like, hey, can I use your husband's material for a groovy hip musical?" And she said, "Oh heavens!" Um, Oh, Sir Reginald. Oh, Sir Reginald. So the project was essentially dead in the water. He couldn't get the rights. So he started to reconfigure it into his own sort of, you know, version of 1984. But he didn't want to get rid of a song that he had written called 1984. So he used it. Uh, And that album eventually became Diamond Dogs. Ah. So that that was where Diamond Dogs came from. It was supposed to be a stage musical about 1984. Uh, And this is a little snippet of... 1984. I gotta say, I know, um, obviously we need to talk about the subject of the song, and listeners can't see what we're seeing, but I gotta say, these are, these are the sharpest shoulder pads I have ever seen in my life that he has on. Like, you could, he, could, he, could, he could pop balloons with them. I was gonna say, it's a form of natural defensive system. It's a natural defensive layer, like an armadillo shell. Yes, he curls into a ball to ward off predators. Um, but he... So like I, I, I said before... Um, you know, like the counterculture kind of assimilated start like in 1973, 1984 was the beginning of it being assimilated into counterculture and people talking about, you know, Big Brother as the Nixon administration, Big Brother as another word for the man, you know, that kind of thing before it became old hat and just something we make fun of people for. <laughs> and um, we do. 
And we do. So the song, he modified it. I, I would like to believe that it, when he was writing it for the musical, it had a little bit more bite to it in terms of being about 1984, the book. But once it became just another song on the album Diamond Dogs, uh, he fussed with it a little bit. There's still a couple of things, like he mentioned tracks, like the tracks on the TV, which is a reference to like tracks, the uh, like video surveillance of everyone. There'd be a you know recording of everyone, recording track of everyone and their movements. Um, you know, at the beginning of the song, he uh, makes mention of like memory. Uh, he uh, like the first line of the song is about memory modification. Uh, which they would, you know, Big Brother and the government of Oceana, if I remember correct, was the totalitarian state involved in the book, uh, what they would do to their dissidents that they found. Uh, so fun little things, fun little things like that in David Bowie's 1984. Um, and so that was, uh, I, I'm not going to get too much into that because that's really, again, the the long and short of it. Uh, and I want to move on to some other things. But the... Uh, after David Bowie, we have actually, this is a threefer. Uh, this is one work that has inspired three, well, more than three, but I picked three. Because um, we give you is, more here on the Song Topsy Report. Exactly. Uh, and this is, I'd consider it like a science fiction fantasy uh, book, uh, The Stand by Stephen King. Uh, one of his rare, you know, non-horror, non-dramatic works. Um, I mean, there's some scary shit in it, but it's mostly, you know, a science fiction story that turns into a fantasy story, an urban, like an urban Americana fantasy story. Um, have you read the the Stand? I have not read the Stand. I have seen. I've I've watched the miniseries a few times. The the classic Gary Sinise one. Um, but yes. Don't dream it's over. Hey now, hey now. Uh, you didn't see the new one? I thought the new one was pretty good. Yeah, I'm interested in seeing the new one. Um, I have not seen it yet. Okay. Well, do you know anything about The Stand? Yes. About the book? What do you know? Well, um... I just realized I haven't been asking you these questions. This is supposed <laughs> to be a dialogue. No, it's, it's, it's kind of more of an are you telling me? I'm happy. Are you telling me, Steve, that there was a book called The Stand written by Stephen King in either the late 70s or early 80s, I don't remember exactly, that was about the this 70s. plague that rips through the world and kills most of the population, but the survivors end up forming two separate kind of groups of people, one led by a good person and one led by an evil person, like personifications of good and evil almost, and then there's a final stand that must be made? No, you're completely wrong. <sighs> Damn it. It's about a scary clown and four kids who find a dead body. I don't think that's true. I might be mix I might be mixing things up. It's about a cemetery for pets. <laughs> uh and Tommy knockers, whatever those are. So, yes, that is that is exactly right, Nick. That is the long and short of the plot of the stand. That no, that's the short of the plot of the stand. The long of the plot of the stand is several is a thousand pages. Yeah, it's like twelve hundred. He made an extended. He he wrote an extended version, like a you know what fifteen twenty years ago, where he included stuff he cut out, and the book is like thirteen hundred pages long. Yeah, my favorite part about Stephen King's I I read I've read some Stephen King work, and I I know things about his work, but the reason I never get into his work is because he does not know how to end a story. <laughs> I mean, the stories have endings, but they're almost always unsatisfying. Part of that might have to be because he wrote 500 pages before. Like, you can't, like, you're not going to end that. You're drained by the time you get to the end of it. You're not going to end that on a high note. But, like, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read, like, It. 
You know, the scary clown that, you know, like, that th- that threatens and frightens those children that whole movie. Turns out he's just a giant spider with psychic powers. Ooh. Not exactly. Look, I will say uh, Stephen King is such an excellent writer, I find, because he, when you're reading, not, not when you're watching some of the crummier adaptations, film adaptations, but when you're reading him, his work, he can make ridiculous stuff seem legitimate and scary. What about the part in It where those children have sex with each other? Okay, you're just... Oh, oh! someone read all the articles that came out when the first <laughs> It movie came out, and they talked about what they cut from the book. Ooh, but uh, I... <laughs> I went through a I went through a Stephen King phase in like early high school where I read a lot of his books um in fairly rapid succession. I read Firestarter, I read like half of the Dark Tower series. Um what else did I read? Salem's Lot, uh all good stuff. Well, you and I, I guess just have a difference of opinion on that. Again, <laughs> I I don't th- he's not he's obviously a good writer because people he's one of the most famous writers in the world. It's just my, not my cup of tea, yeah, and he, the, his I, endings leave a lot to be desired, which is why I was especially dumbfounded to hear that for the uh, the new iteration of The Stand, the new TV miniseries, he was brought on to write the final episode of the miniseries. And I was like, no, don't bring him on for the last episode. He's going to drop the ball. So music, though. No, no, we're not talking about music. I told you this was going to be a crunchy episode. That's true. That's fair. That's fair. We were all warned, listeners. We were warned. So, Nick, up for, uh, up front, and by up front, I mean from behind. Forty minutes, forty minutes into the episode. Yes. Uh, you had mentioned when I asked you about the stand. You said two, two worlds or two uh, two different factions. sort of civilizations, yeah. factions, and we made the joke both are like in dignity, et cetera, et cetera. Very clever. Um, yes, we're funny. We're very funny and clever. Um, and uh, one of them led by the personification of good, one led by the personification of evil. Now, with just that small fact, which of those two do you think inspired the most songs? Well, obviously the evil side, Randall Flagg was a wildly charismatic villain. Uh, yes, that is correct. Unfortunately, there are way more songs about the walking dude than there are about Mother Abigail. Um, because it just he just lends himself to, he's, he's like, uh, he's, what if... He's like all of the evils of America wrapped up into one person, like right down to the fact that he wears like a like a denim jacket ooh, and cowboy boots <laughs> and has orange hair and skin. Yes. Um, but uh, he uh, yes. Randall Flagg, the main villain of The Stand, has inspired quite a lot of music. Uh, we're going to listen to a couple of them right now. Uh, this is a, a Welsh rock band called The Alarm. <clears throat> and they were frontliner for U2 and Bob Dylan in the 80s. So they were kind of a big deal. Uh, and they wrote a song called Drumroll Pre- Drum- oh, Fuck. And they wrote, <clears throat> cut that. And they wrote a song, Drumroll Please, called of The Stand. Groovy. Yeah, so, you know, not super subtle. <laughs> the, the phrase, the stand, is in it, as is the phrase, make a stand. Uh, 
the uh, references, uh, walking dude, cowboy boots, um, the man with no name. He's also known as the uh, man with no uh, man with no name. Uh, Randall Flagg is just one of many names that he has. Uh, and you know, it's, this is, there's going to be a lot of similarities in the type of sort of music that this sort of inspires as well. So that was, that was, uh, the alarm. The next one is a perennial favorite of both Nick and myself. In fact, it bears Nick's name. And that is, the, uh, the artist Nick Cave of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, uh, an Australian artist known for being very broody, very, uh, very much a Stephen King character in and of himself, actually. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Uh, and he actually wrote a song that I play at least three or four times every Halloween, and Nick plays probably at least once a day. Um, it's good getting dressed music. Yeah. Uh, and this song is entirely from the is entirely from the perspective of the walking dude, the the man with no name, Randall Flag, uh, and it's called Red Right Hand. the song so many times never knew that that was actually what it was the that was the person he was referencing it it was yeah so it, i i couldn't find in my research if it was it was an inspiration i couldn't find and and a reference but i couldn't find anything that says you know i couldn't find any nick cave interview where he said i wrote a song about randall flag and i am from boston yeah that's my Australian accent, Ask guys. Ask not what the bad seeds can do for you, but what you can do for the bad seeds. There's Red Right Hand. That's a remix, by, right the, hand. That's a remix by the Dead yeah. Kennedys. Yeah. Uh, Red Right Hand is actually the only part of the song that I know for a fact wasn't referencing anything having to do with Stephen King. That's actually a reference to uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost. So is, is, is the owner of the proverbial Red Right Hand just an amalgamation of spooky bad people who will lead you astray? Who, uh, but in addition to that, there's more of that element of the stand of Randall Flagg of it being, you know, there's a very obvious sense of the post-apocalyptic through this disappearing land. Uh, he he paints a very apocalyptic picture of he you know paints ruins it with a red right hand. Exactly, uh, it's covered in red paint. That's how he does it. He's Banksy, <laughs> and uh, he you know dusty black coat. He's all in black. Uh, Randall Flagg spends most of the stand, or most of the middle part of the stand, walking across the barren wasteland of post-apocalyptic America, finding the worst sorts of people and offering them their heart's desire, you know, like uh, offering them warmth and comfort, uh, but it's like a false warmth and false comfort, and offering to give them their their desires, and their desires are by and large horrible, Um which is uh, more or less what the main character of Red Right Hand does, spends the rest of the song doing. I won't go into the whole song, but a lot of it's much the same. Just walking around, uh, offering people money and fame and jewels and offering them whatever they want uh, so long as they follow him uh, to 
what can be no good end if the, you know, timbre of the song is to be believed. No good end, a.k.a. what Steve thinks about Stephen King books. Exactly. But so, you know, uh, there's a there's also a, there's a Metallica song. Uh, I won't cover that right now, but there's a you know, Metallica song that also references the stand. So we've got uh, The Alarm, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Metallica, and ABBA? Question mark? Huh. Firstly, like all ABBA songs, it slaps. Secondly, this feels more, uh, just based on the lyrics I've heard, uh, because I'm rustier on uh, this specific ABBA song, uh, seems to be about more of a Pied Piper than anything related that's to Stephen King. That's part of it. Well, that's that's part of it. So um, the sort of the main character is obviously based on the Pied Piper of Hamlin story, uh, right down to the fact that there's a pan flute. Um, but that's ABBA for you. <laughs> Part of the inspiration, so the the main character, obviously based on the Pied Piper, but the Randall Flagg character also has sort of similarities to the Pied Piper, someone who travels around enticing people to come and follow him. Uh, And ABBA's, uh, ABBA, members of ABBA have stated that in addition to using the Pied Piper as their sort of like main focal point of the song, the Randall Flagg was also, uh, and what he was doing in the book, The Stand, was part of their inspiration for writing the song because they were the book very like the Randall flags, Las Vegas was like a, a nightmarish totalitarian, like not even totalitarian. It was in the sense that he was in control of everything, but it was more like a, um, lawless, more, heathen. Yeah. Yeah. Lawless and hedonistic. Like there's like, he has control, but the his, way his control takes shape is in complete chaos and lawlessness. Um, so long as he is in charge and they do what he says. So uh, they were seeing, much like David Bowie had been, they were seeing certain elements of that creep up in society, and they wanted to address it in a way that, you know, only Abba can do, jauntily. Uh, but that that was part of their inspiration with Stephen King's The Stand. So, you know, we've got Abba thrown in there with <laughs> Nick Cave and Metallica. Perfect combo. Uh, and... With that, we're going to move on from the Netherlands, and we're going to go back to uh, the UK uh, for Isn't a band. Are they Swedish? Are they? They're Swedish. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I'm racist against white people. I'm sorry. <laughs> they all look the same. They all look the same to me. All you vaguely Western slash Scandinavian Europeans with your height, with your height and multilingual skills. It's funny, me saying that, considering my Ancestry.com genetic profile basically labels me as five different kinds of white person. It's a self-hating racism. Anyway, we're going to go back to different white people in the United Kingdom. Um, this is a band, uh, they're called XTC, and that's, you know, the letters XTC. Obviously, you say it out loud, XTC. That's That was on purpose. Uh, they're an English rock band, and they were one of the first and most prominent psychedelic rock bands, uh, one of the pioneers pioneers of the genre. Um, uh, they're also considered one of the earliest godfathers of the nerd rock genre. 
which I maybe at some point down the line, if we do another one of these like episodes just for fun, I'm going to do another episode where and I'll talk specifically about this isn't the nerd music, guys. This is just cool music that uses nerd topics. We're going to I'll talk about nerd music at another uh, another time, another place. But uh, there's a whole genre called nerd rock, and this is one of the bands that sort of inspired it uh, with songs like Sergeant Rock is Gonna Help Me, which is um, utilizes a character, a, a World War II character from uh, DC Comics called Sergeant Rock, um, which is sort of like their version of Nick Fury, the Marvel's Nick Fury. Um, and this song, that's really super, Supergirl from the 1986 album Skylarking. I can't hold you I feel better for knowing I didn't like this sound when it first came out, and I don't like what came after it in terms of the like nerd rock. So uh, it's good to know that it always has been unappealing. Oh, okay. Well, fuck you then. <laughs> fuck you. I love this song. It's one of my favorite songs. I've been listening to it for years since I was a teenager. Anywho, you suck, and I hate you. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Steve. I was too busy being cool listening to Linkin Park, amongst others. Yeah. See, you had your nerdy, clever referential stuff. I had Chester Bennington screaming, shut up when I'm talking to you as the, like, last bridge before the last chorus. Head up, I'm about to break! I do, I mean, I do like to tell people to shut up when I'm talking to them. Um, Oh, no, is it, is it shut up when you're talking to me or shut up? How does it? The jokey line is, you shut you shut your mouth when you're talking to me. Right. Chester Bennington is shut up when I'm talking to you. Shut up when I'm talking to you. Yeah, it makes sense. That makes more sense. That's why it's not funny. Look, the um, band wasn't known for their great comic timing. They were known for their uh, angst. But this, this is yet another song about a member of the Superman family. We've done a couple of them at this point, I think. Um, uh <laughs> We, which, and again, this proves how uh, chauvinistic and sexist we are. We talked about Superman and all of the super pets before we got to Supergirl. We talked about the super pets? You talked about the super pets. You talked about the fucking horse. I did? Remember I the don't horse? remember this. Comet, Comet, the super horse that can read, that can like, he, Superman talks to the horse psych, like psychically and the horse is like, hey guys, I've set up, Satergirl set up a psychic link between all of us so that I can talk to you Steve, now. Steve, was this a fever dream? I don't remember this. No. No, this was during the Can You Read My Mind episode, and this was a point that you brought up, so I didn't even bring it up. You brought Super it up unrelated Holy to me. Holy shit, I may have been lying. I have no memory of that. After we talked about we talked about fucking Comet, the Super Horse, Streaky, the Super Cat, Crypto, the Super Dog. We talked about all of them before we talked about Supergirl. But you know who talked about her first? XTC. And it sounds like they had a really bad breakup. Yeah. Supergirl. They are talking about Supergirl, DC Comics character. Yes, I include comic books as part of science fiction. Screw you guys if you're yelling at me right now. <laughs> They're from an alien planet. It's science fiction. Leave me alone. 
I don't know if anyone needs a reminder of who Supergirl is. Nick, do you need a reminder of who Supergirl is? She is a girl who is super uh, tangentially related to Superman. No, directly by blood related to Superman. She's his cousin. (laughs) Why isn't she called Super Cousin then? Because that'll give it away. Oh, that was a secret at one point? I, I am not. No, because her, 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 her secret identity is also as Clark Kent's cousin. Yeah, well, she could be super cousin, and we don't know who she's the cousin of. She could be oh, anyone's man. super Superman, cousin. Superman, the guy who kind of looks like Clark Kent, has a cousin called Supergirl who kind of looks like Clark Kent's cousin, Kara. No, but see, if they called her super cousin, then they would just know her as an individual called super cousin there wouldn't be any relation i mean if when the pc police get their way i don't know if that argument i made made any sense but it felt right it didn't it didn't but when the pc (laughs) police have their way she'll be called super person and then where will we be Uh, don't take away her identity as a woman super girl she's got power did she come up that title or did 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 the media gender her and call her super because that's i say a super cousin you know in english cousin is a is a neutral term Mm -hmm. Lois called her that. Oh. Gonna have to talk down to so, Lo- Lois. is being very problematic. Okay, see, this, Lo- this... Lois is part of the problem. Mike would be getting animated if he was here for this part. Yeah, man, you know what? And then that would lead to to a, a less than facetious tangent, I'm sure. But well, yes. thank God we thank God he's not here to do that, because we got more song to cover. Oh, boy. Do you hate it more now? You say you listen to this for enjoyment, right, Steve? <laughs> yes. Okay, okay, just double check. Hey, you know what I really like about it is how I can tell what all the lyrics are because everyone's singing clearly. Yeah, but sometimes it's the singing clearly that actually reveals why the song isn't good. It, it. I'm listening to it, and I don't immediately wish that the band's instruments could explode in their faces and render them incapable of growling at me any longer. <laughs> Steve, in all seriousness, you know, there's no accounting for taste, and in this case, there's no accounting for yours. If mu- Whatever music, you know, and this is coming from someone who's had to defend much less defensible music than even this, so I know what it's like. Thanks? You're welcome. Wow. I'm, I, Pat yourself on the back, you brave, brave am man. Am I you. a hero? I don't know, but I think I'm the only one who can confirm that yes, yes, I am. That's really super, well, Nick. That's how I... Super dick, more like it. I've been told I have one. Rhymes with Nick. Yes, Steve, I think that's I think that's that's why you said it that way. So does prick and lick. Okay, I'm moving on. God, it's like I'm back in um, middle school again. This was the reason I was homeschooled yeah. for two years. It was bullying like no, this. N- yeah, okay, no, yeah. That's that. Uh, that's another fun tether back to the Tolkien and metal episode. I distinctly recall me asking you if your interest in metal and the Tolkien that inspired it was uh, simultaneous with the increased levels of bullying you received. And then I think your response was to tell me that you were homeschooled for three years. So Two, two years. And <laughs> two years, sorry. So, Steve, is your argument that, you know, look, sometimes bullying can be a corrective force in the world? Yeah, sometimes it makes you a man. 
a broken, broken man. And who makes great art? Broken people. Broken people. Uh, this was the, uh, by the way, this is the first song we've covered so far that was uh, less from a the perspective of the, like, the the topic like the like yeah you know the last couple songs we talked about that's like from the perspective of the character or from like some sort of metaphor for the story or directly inspired the plot of the story uh this was the first time uh the subject uh ever (laughs) broke up with the band so that's why i thought that was fun yeah iron Maiden should have written a song about breaking up with the sandworm from dune uh so if if nick has a, a stated distaste for nerd rock. He's really going to hate this next group. Okay, 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 this group is kind of above that. You can't. Particle man, particle man, doing the things a particle can. What's he like? It's not important. Particle man, is he a dot or is he a speck? When he's underwater, does he get wet or does the water get him instead? Nobody knows. Particle man. Why are we uh, this is, of course, Particle Man. Particle Man from the music duo They Might Be Giants. Uh, another sort of... They'll they'll disagree with you if you tell them this, but uh, another sort of like intro to nerd rock sort of like uh, group. They're, they're not of that genre, and they will tell you that... They will tell you that they're not of that genre because they don't like to be necessarily... They don't like to have their music labeled one thing or another, uh, which is true because as far as as far as like music groups go, I can't really put a pin on what they might be giants are, which is why I think I love them so much. Like I don't know what kind of music they're considered almost. But why are we watching this in a Tiny Toons clip? Is this how the song debuted? No, this is just where most people are our age or our well, my age generation, Nick, uh, probably first. Uh, experienced They Might Be Giants was from a special episode of Tiny Toon Adventures where uh, all three of the segments of the episode were basically animated music videos of They Might Be Giants song featuring Tiny Toon's characters. That's where I was introduced to them anyway. So that's why I used that for our sort of like intro here just because nostalgia purposes. Yeah, that's... And nostalgia is God. According to Hollywood at least. Yeah, listeners, that's why you may have heard some... Uh sort of out of context sound effects. Yeah, in the in the music video they wrote for it, Plucky Duck is a is Particle Man and they are envisioning all of the various characters you're going to hear as different types of pro wrestlers and they're having a fight in the you know in the arena. Uh because the structure of the song is uh is a fight. Uh it's structured uh, uh, it's centered around a character Particle Man and his his various opponents and how they all hate him, beat him up. Um but uh, this song, and I bring this up because this song is not, I don't mention it because like, oh, Particle Man, that's science, right? No, that, you fucking dick, why are you, don't talk down to me, person I made up. Um, no, this is a song, the, the Maybe Giants is a duo, uh, the, the Johns, John Flansburg and John Linnell. And uh, when interview about the song, one of their inspirations for the song was the 1960s Spider-Man cartoon. Specifically, it's ever-present theme song that will never be forgotten. <laughs> the sands of time will run dry, and this song will still exist. I don't. I didn't even bring it to play because if you don't know the song I'm talking about, yeah, you I, know this Spider Man, Spider Man. Yeah. I, I always, I, I pity you if you don't know. I love unironically 
how the the current generation of Spider-Man movies ha- the soundtrack has that orchestral swell to try to make that goofy 60s theme sound as epic as possible and they make it work somehow. Oh, I've been waiting for that for years. Ever since the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, I was like, are they going to are they going to just use the theme but like make it super sweeping and awesome and like with the full orchestra backing and they never did. They just made jokes about at least the Sam Raimi movies made jokes about the song. And then the first I distinctly remember sitting in the movie theater watching Spider-Man Homecoming and like the 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 super famous Marvel credits started rolling and the very first thing I hear is a Michael Giacchino violin led version of the theme and I like in the theater like pumped my fist in the air and went yes finally um it's a piece of movie magic I'll never get back and I'll have to live in the memory forever uh thank you for the, sharing that Steve you're welcome uh so I was influenced by that by that theme song the theme song you know, Nick went over a bit. Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever Spider uh, Spider can. Can he swing from a thread, et cetera, et cetera. The song is almost like a call and answer, like, a, here's Spider-Man. What does he do? He does this. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Here's Spider-Man. More uh, of an interrogation, really. Yeah. And so they, they, you know, they obviously heard that song and they thought it'd be funny and be fun to do a song like that a song full of characters and the each character is introduced and each character is introduced with some sort of descriptor particle man particle man you know doing the things a particle can what's he like it's not important particle man it's basically a it's almost a parody of the spider-man theme song and every character that comes in you get a similar sort of thing like this And Triangle Man, whose sole, sole existence, whose whose existence is predicated solely on his hatred of Particle Man. He has no other defining feature but that he hates Particle I wanna, Man. I want to hear that backstory. It's like, why do you hate Particle Man so much, Triangle Man? I, but that's that's. I sorry, know, go ahead. I know why because he's actually love Triangle Man. Oh, but that was that was too spicy for Tiny Tunes. Yeah. Most things are too spicy for Tiny Tunes. It's a show for children, for God's sake. I don't know. They did They did that whole episode about underage drinking where they all get drunk and drive their car off a cliff and die. I missed that episode. Oh, yeah. There's a whole There's a whole episode where there's like a segment about underage drinking and like Hampton, Plucky, and uh, Buster all die. They all get killed. That sounds great. I should... God, I missed... I, you, you know what? Generational gap between us? I if, if so, I missed out. Yeah. It gets dark. It gets dark in uh, in Acmeville, you know. Uh, it also now after being exposed to like Harry Potter, it, I, I'm now think I'm now thinking back on Tiny Toons and be like, that's a lot like Harry Potter. <laughs> it's like you've got all these professors and they're, you know, they're they're all the various Looney Tunes characters and they're 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 at their their peak of their powers and they're all these kid versions of them running around trying to trying to be as good. I don't know. There's like a whole. It's like a whole Harry Potter vibe to it. Or no, Harry Potter has a Tiny Toons vibe. <laughs> Get it right. Get it right or pay the price, Ugg. Um, I have one more song, one more band, and one more science fiction inspiration for you. And uh, it's a, it's the band Blue Oyster Cult. It's an American hard rock band. Most everyone probably knows them for their song, Don't Fear the Reaper. 
uh, another Halloween favorite. Uh, also, the cowbell, fucking cowbell sketch from SNL. Won't get into that, but you can thank Blue Oyster Cult for more cowbell. <laughs> um, one of uh, they had like three big hits. The three biggest hits were um, "Don't Fear the Reaper." Uh, there's one other I'm I'm misplacing at the moment, but the third biggest hit, believe it or not, is a song, tongue tongue in cheek though it may be, uh, based entirely on the famous Tojo, not Tojo, Toho Films uh, character. Uh, can you call him a character? Yes, you Gojira. can. Gojira. Can you call Kojira Gojira a character? Gojira has an arc motivations. He has a son, for God's sake, Steve. He's, he's got a family, you monster. You're the real monster here. Man's the real monster. Uh, if you haven't seen any Godzilla movie, Steve just summarized it right there. Yeah. Every Godzilla... The first Godzilla movie was man is the real monster. And then every movie after the first one, the real monster was whatever the monster Godzilla fought at the end. That is true, yes. Except for uh, Godzilla versus Hedora. Hedora was like a weird smog pollution monster, so that had a bit of a message to it. Even even then, man was still the monster. He just made a different monster to fight for him, and that monster was pollution. There's a lot of monsters out there, listeners. That's the take on point. And be afraid of them all. And at one point, one of them was like a, a hydra from outer space. He shoots electricity out of his mouth. But that's neither here nor there. That means nothing. <laughs> But the Blue Oyster, Blue Oyster Cult, for one reason or another, thought it'd be funny, thought it'd be fun, to write a song about Godzilla. And this was the song by Blue Oyster Cult about Godzilla. And it's called Godzilla. That's what he does. Pretty apt, yeah. Pretty apt description of the daily activities of one Gojira. But you know, someone's got to chronicle it. You know, I did the little bit of research I did on this. I still, for the life of me, God knows, I don't know why the Blue Oyster Cult thought, "Let's make a song about Godzilla." Why not, Steve? Why not? But it's shake it it's up. A, it, it's a hole that needed filling, apparently, in the fabric or psychic fabric of our collective consciousness. Um, and they actually stop smiling, you pervert. Um, and they actually, they actually, uh, for, uh, of the, the newer Godzilla movies, did you watch any of those? Or actually, let me ask you, cause we didn't dialogue this, Nick, uh, yet. Um, wh what is your familiarity with Godzilla? I was notwithstanding, notwithstanding what has been described by the Blue Oyster Cult I so was far. really into them when I was younger. I saw, um, like, which ones did I see? Like, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, the original Godzilla versus Gigan, Godzilla versus Biollante. Uh, oh, Godzilla versus Gigan featuring Jet Jaguar? Yes, Jet Jaguar. Yes. Everyone's favorite Godzilla related character, Jet Jaguar. But of course, the first one that I saw was obviously the 1998 American Matthew Broderick one, uh, which I cannot 
I know it's not a good movie, but I can't see it as not a good movie because I watched it so much as a kid that, and I enjoyed it. Uh, and then I'm, oh, you mean where Godzilla was created by the French and killed by Americans? Yeah, exactly. There's there's some commentary in there somewhere that I'm sure I've never paid attention to, and uh, yeah, and then the recent ones. Yeah, I, I don't think to, there's actually uh, one of the uh, more recent uh, Toho uh, films was the uh, Japanese film company that has the licensing rights to Godzilla and uh, produces all of the Japanese films. And one of the, I remember one distinctly, one of the ones they filmed from the mid 2000s was sort of a uh, all out monsters attack sort of movie where they had a bunch of them sort of like a, like a battle Royale sort of movie. And one of them, one of the monsters that was featured in it was actually the American version of Godzilla. Huh. Uh, and they called him Zilla. That was what they called him, that but works. they he was all he was also the only monster in that movie that wasn't a suitmation monster. Like they purposely made him a crappy looking CGI monster as a commentary on America's crappy CGI. That's uh, good version of Godzilla, uh, and Godzilla like kills him instantly, just like snaps his neck. I forget exactly how it does it, but basically he just like takes him and just snaps his neck and he's dead. Um. So that I don't think they were too happy with our version with that version of Godzilla. But then we we righted the ship years later and legendary films got involved and we made uh we made a decent American Godzilla yeah. movie. It wasn't as um, good as the trailers made yeah. it out to be, but it was still good. Though and I will die on this hill. Godzilla King of the Monsters, mwah. Like I love that film. <laughs> that is that is the closest that is the closest to a perfect synthesis between like Japanese and American sensibilities vis-a-vis Godzilla. Like they had all the like all the crazy shit going on and and like uh you know the you know, the main characters were a lot of them it was they were you know multicultural, you know, wasn't all Americans, but you know they had all sorts of crazy like hollow earth shit and all the monsters were in it and some of them were aliens and uh and like humanity was also a monster like the the joke that we just made about humans being a monster was very explicitly made that like the collective humanity is considered like an alpha kaiju similar to godzilla so like he respects us just not as individuals Mm. but as like a whole organism humanity is the equivalent of a giant monster uh the whole like flying around in a giant jet fixed wing aircraft that shouldn't fucking fly whatsoever (laughs) and it's got missiles and shit it's awesome it's a fucking awesome movie and everyone should go watch it if they want to see anything godzilla related but that is the take-home point of this podcast yeah but they don't want to sit through like a you know like a subtitled japanese film which in in fairness i've watched most of the japanese toho godzilla movies and yes Admittedly, I skip through most of the not monster fighting. Because again, it's not in my language. It's telling a story about people I don't recognize. And I am there for Godzilla. Even during the American Godzilla, the one from 2014, that was pretty good. I could give a shit about fucking the guy in the army and him getting back to his family. Like, I don't go to a Godzilla movie and patiently wait to see, oh God biting my fingernails oh i hope the american gi can reconnect with his family 
Oh, I hope his father and him reestablish their relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever, Godzilla. I've got to wait to see if this family drama plays out because I care about them. That's why I watch a Godzilla movie. Okay. That was a weird tangent I didn't expect well, to go on. Re regardless, King of the Monsters, they do a cover of this Blue Oyster Cult <laughs> song, and it's, it's fucking rocks, and you should go check it out. And here's the rest of the Blue Oyster Cult Godzilla song because it also rocks. And Steve, that's that's why the Blue Oyster Cult didn't write the song about the American GI. They wrote the song about Godzilla. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what it is, but if you tell, if you put like "Go Go" in front of something, I don't know why, but it, it seems to uh, like s saying "Go Go Blank," whether it be Gadget, Godzilla, Power Rangers, Power Rangers, any anything that starts with "Go Go," I I I went went I. <laughs> I'm like, yes, this, this adds a sense of urgency and immediacy, immediacy to what you're about to tell me. I'm involved. I'm on board. I'm uninvolved. Yeah. I don't know if it works with everything like go-go fascism. I hope it doesn't work <laughs> with that. Uh, give it five years, Steve. Yeah. But yes, Blue Oyster Cult, Godzilla. I ranted for much longer than I intended to about the Godzilla No, you series. didn't, Steve. You ranted as long as you knew you would. Um, but I think I've brought, I think that's enough examples of, uh, science fiction and its influence on popular music and rock music for the time being. Yeah, no, if this, uh, if this was a thesis statement, I think you've presented some compelling evidence. This is definitely C-plus work. I mean, not that I feel like many people Rambling, were... rambling, no, no real consistency or narrative to speak of, but, you know, the facts were there. I don't know if there's many people who would push back and say there's never been science fiction in music, but that being said, some compelling and fun examples you brought, Steve. And once again, on remarkably short notice, so thank you. You're welcome. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in this week. You can follow us on social media. Please check us out if you have not done so already on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out Dapper Devil Productions and follow our personal social media pages as well. Um, fun stuff gets posted there on occasion, perhaps with more regularity as we start to gear up to some of our future projects, including some uh, podcast material, perchance, some video material, perchance. Uh, I keep dropping the same vague hints, but uh, listeners, please know... The, the second something exists, we're going to tell you about it. Until then, we're going to be real dicks about not telling you about yes, it. Yes, yes. We will, we'll drop more hints once a few more tangible pieces have fallen in, but we're very excited about it. Uh, so check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Nick Brigadier. And uh, Steve, where can we find you? You can find me also on Twitter and Instagram at Your Man Trollo. Uh, you can... Well, you can find me at your mantra. You can't also find me at your mantra because Nick's not there at your mantra. He's not. there at Nick Brigadier. Uh, if you go looking for him there, you will find maybe a couple pictures of him. Uh, I forget what I posted. Um, that's just blackout, just posting pictures of other people on Instagram. Uh, yeah, and sure. you can. Now, you can find me there on my personal website, stephentrolger.com. Uh, the first episode in which I appear of time trip from uh just press playhouse came out 
today. Today we're recording th- uh, on a Thursday. It came out today. So by the time you hear this, it'll already still be out. Hell yeah. That's I a bunch to the of different that's a bunch of different tenses in a row. I listened to the already first episode. Still will have been out. I listened to the first episode. Uh good fun. Distinct lack of Steve, but uh definitely check it out, listeners. Has been remedied. Um, so go check that out and download it and subscribe and continue to listen. Yes, just pre- uh, just press Playhouse uh, to hear that. And uh, well, uh, just press Playhouse. Is, there's actually uh, two, like Time Trip has its own feed. Oh yes. So if you're yes, looking for sorry. the podcast, look for Time Trip specifically. Ex- yes. And then if you like it and you want to hear more of the stuff that they make, go to Just Press Playhouse. And I'm sure Mike would say that you could follow him on his Instagram at Mr. Mike Russell. Oh, you can follow him at my. Oh my God, he said it so many times, and now I want to actually try to say it. Yes, you can follow me at MrMikeRussell.com. That's MrMR.dot. And uh, yeah, like Nick said, you know, go to Nick's personal account and uh, Steve's and uh, check out some of his stuff. And uh, the poll question, oh God, without Mike, are we going to be able to post the poll question? Um, what is, uh, maybe share a science fiction song that you like or a science fiction inspired song that we didn't get to that you think people should hear about? And if we like it, we'll share it. I'm sure we'll like it. I don't know why we wouldn't. Uh, we'll share it on our Instagram. <laughs> if we like it, there's conditions, guys. Yes, yes. You don't all just get freebies. No, please. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll post a poll question there about your favorite sci-fi inspired songs, and we'll share it there. Um, and that is it for this week, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, I am Nick Brigadier. I'm Steve Trollinger, and this is Godzilla. <laughs> Just imagining him, Godzilla himself, shredding right now. It's very fun. How did they make a guitar big enough for him? And how did he learn how to play? We don't know. Also, we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye.